We've been studying the book of Hebrews, and today, what we just sang in the third verse of that song is exactly what I, wanna, I want to happen today. My hope provides me with a spur to help me run this race. Um, as we struggle through life, as we struggle with living out the Christian faith, we want to renew our hope in Christ. I know my tears. We, we want to look at our hope, look at Christ, and have our tears turn to joy or, or be looking forward to that day and resting in that day, that our tears will be turned to joy because of Christ. That's what I want to do today. We're going to look at Jesus today. We're going to, we're going to delve into what this passage says about him. Now remember, the book of Hebrews was written to professing Christians who were considering giving up on the Christian faith. They were very discouraged. It was difficult for them to live the Christian life just as it is today. And, and that difficulty is there. And we need to accept that it's going to be difficult. No matter what the preachers on television like Joel Osteen and other health and wealth and prosperity preachers say, this is not your best life now. There's something greater that is coming. Jesus promised that his followers would in, encounter tribulation, persecution, and a struggle with the world, our own flesh, and the devil and his cohorts. But there is something greater waiting for us, something what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And that's what we're looking forward to. In the meantime, we wait with patience, with long-suffering. And my purpose for us today, as I said, is for us to, as the writer of Hebrews says, to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the hope for the Christian. Let's hear now God's holy, inspired, and errant word. Let's pray first that the Lord would grant us some illumination here. Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes, that the Spirit would illuminate us, that we would be able to see that we would be able to understand and grasp and appropriate what's, what's being uh, taught us here in Hebrews chapter 6. Lord, we pray that we would be encouraged in our faith today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 11 of chapter 6. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final. For confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. I read an article probably about 20 years ago from a man named Morris Roberts who was editor of the Banner of Truth magazine. And they seem more appropriate today than they did 20 years ago. He writes, There are not wanting here and there the signs that good Christians are suffering from a kind of spiritual metal fatigue. In our fellowships, iron rarely sharpens iron any longer. Much preaching that is orthodox lacks that ring of conviction which is needed to thrust it home into sinners' consciences. A guilty tameness smothers our zeal. Prayers are humdrum and predictable. The apostolic fire has died down and looks like dying away. The gospel, even where it is preached at all, is clothed with the impeding garments of excessive politeness and respectability. Our sermons are frequently no more than a gentle homily or a quiet talk about good religious ideas. Slowly and imperceptibly, evangelical people are coming to terms emotionally and intellectually with the spirit of the age. Though we should not care to say so, we nonetheless betray our inner despair of ever seeing revival or even a reversal of the present trend downwards. This weariness of soul is not difficult to explain. A deep-seated disappointment has paralyzed many Christian people in our day. Both preachers and hearers are disheartened. The recovery of the doctrines of pure orthodoxy some 30 years ago, 50 years ago now, has not yet been matched by a recovery of spiritual power or influence in society. The world passes by the doors of many excellent churches with as much unconcern today as it did when the old theological liberalism reigned in them and before new and biblical ministries began in them. Preachers who deserve to be listened to by a thousand have to be content with less than 50 hearers. The vision which many had only a few years ago has not been realized. The mirage has not yet become a pool of water. The promises of God are seemingly at variance with his providences. A bewilderment and a confusion have come upon us. There is a widespread feeling that something has gone wrong. Meanwhile, we all grow older. There is an unspoken agreement that the fight is too hard for us. When shall we be able to withdraw from the scene of battle with at least some semblance of honor? Spiritual drowsiness is very catchy. The air soon becomes heavy with it. Active life and movement, once so noticeable, gradually dies down as one after another succumbs to the spirit of drowsiness. As the voices of young children in a nursery die down one by one at their rest time, so the once active testimonies of God's people become gradually silent in a sleepy time. That's kind of a depressing picture he paints there, isn't it? But it's exactly what the, 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 the audience to whom the writer of Hebrews was writing, that's what they were experiencing. They had, they had started with zeal and excitement in the Christian faith, but now as things were getting difficult, they were ready to give in. They were not being empowered. They were not having the influence. In fact, they were suffering greatly because they were Christians. And it just didn't seem worth it anymore 
talks about a sleepy time and he uses that wonderful picture of a nursery where children drop off to sleep. And, and yeah, we like to, to see that in the nursery, but we don't want to see that in the church. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about today. In verse 12 of the passage before us today, the writer is warning us about being sluggish. We talked a little bit about that word last week. It's used twice in chapters 5 and chapter 6. In chapter 5, it's translated uh, that you're dull of hearing. And as I look that word up, uh, the word sluggish or dull of hearing, another way that you can interpret it is, to, is by the word obtuse. Obtuse is not a word we use very often, but it brings out uh, a little different nuance of that word. And the word obtuse means not quick or alert in perception, feeling, or intellect. Or not sensitive or observant. You're just not aware, and you're, you're not really alert to what's going on around you. Or if someone is telling you something, you're not really getting it. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He says, you become dull of hearing, you're obtuse, you're not getting it. I've been telling you these things over and over and over again, and you're not getting it because you want to give up. That's why you want to get up, you're not getting it, you're not understanding it. The opposite word would be to be vigilant, to be alert, and to be on watch, to be careful, to be very observant. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants his hearers to uh, to be like. They want to be vigilant. And, the, of course, the rest of Scripture bears that out. We're often encouraged to be vigilant because we're at war. You know, the, the Christian life is spiritual warfare. And if you go to sleep on the battlefield, you end up dead. If you drowsily wander uh, uh, across the field of battle, you're going to get shot. But a good soldier is vigilant, on the alert, observant, and all of his senses are steeled and ready for action. And that's what we're called to be in the Christian life. Satan wants us to take our eyes off the prize. Our flesh wants what it wants. Our world encourages us to do whatever we feel like doing. That's, that's the, the mantra that we're faced with today. You know, whatever feels good, do it. People just said it back in the 70s. Now everybody's doing it. These are our enemies, the world, the flesh, our own flesh, the devil. If we listen to the world, the flesh, and the devil, we will not survive. We will be like those that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy who have made shipwreck of their faith. The big three in our world today. Sex, money, and power. So many people are putting their hope in the sexual revolution, doing the things that they want to do. See, that appeals to the flesh. Or money and material possessions. Is there a nation on earth that's, that's more material, materially driven than the United States? Japan is too, very materialistic. And, and as well, uh, power. Isn't that what all the fighting in America is about today? People grasping for power, people wanting to be empowered. These are all things people look to for hope, but they're all things that will disappoint 
Real hope does not lie in the sexual revolution. Those people who have bought into that maybe already know it, but they will be disappointed emotionally and physically as well. Those people who are pursuing money and material possessions, (laughs) well, the Bible says you can take it with you when you go. When you die, someone else is going to get all your money and all your possessions and power. You know, really, we're in control of so little in our lives. But it's only in the, the all-powerful God that can we, we truly be empowered. Our God is sovereign and all-powerful. And we can rest in him. But pursuing and trying to gain power for ourselves is futile. Because even the power that we gain, when we die, we will give up that power. God ultimately has all the power. So where does real hope lie? Where does your hope lie today? What are you hoping in? What are you you looking forward to? What are you pursuing in your life that, that makes you say, if I have that, then life is worth living? That's what makes life good, if I have this. For a lot of people, it's sex, money, or power. For many of us here today, it might be something different. There's no limit to the things that we can place our hope in. But there's only one thing, one person in whom we should put our hope that can grant us lasting eternal hope. And of course, that is in Christ. Not just through Christ, but in Christ. And that's that's an important distinction to make. Our hope is in him, being united to him. Not just using him to get hope, not just getting hope through him, but our hope is in him and who he is and what he has done for us. And today I want to remind you of who he is and what he's done for you because this passage tells us. And I've divided into three things, three pictures of who Christ is. First, he's the fulfillment of the promises. Secondly, he's the anchor for the soul. And thirdly, he is the forerunner on our behalf. Now first, he's the fulfillment of the promises. He brings up Abraham here, and he's talking about the covenant promises that God made to Abraham, beginning in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, and he directly quotes from Genesis 22. He says in verse 14, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's quoting from from the aftermath when God told Abram to take Isaac and sacrifice him. And God, in response to uh, uh, Abraham's obedience, says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's a a recapitulation of the promise that God made to to Abram in Genesis 12, repeated in 15, 17, and then repeated to Isaac and to Jacob. In you, in your seed, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. People will come into Christ's kingdom from every tongue and tribe and nation. It will go out into all the world 
and God will gather people for himself from everywhere. That's the promise that he made to Abram. And he's not just talking about the land and, and that Abraham is having descendants, but it's that through him getting the land and having the descendants and the influence that, that he will have, and then through his line of descendants, the Messiah will come to the world and will save the lost. That's the promise. Christ is the fulfillment of the promise because it's only through Christ that, can, that all the nations of the world can be blessed. He is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. Now the point that the writer is making is that God made that promise. He made a promise to Abraham and that was good enough because he's God and God cannot lie. So if someone who cannot lie makes a promise to you, well, that promise is going to be fulfilled. But what the writer is saying is not only did he make a promise, that would have been enough, but he, he backed that promise up with an oath. So he did two things. One is unnecessary because the promise was enough because God is perfect and perfectly faithful and reliable and cannot lie. But God wanted to show and reiterate that his word would come true, that he would indeed bless the nations through the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. He put an oath on top of the promise. And that, he says, is just to reinforce more convincingly, verse 17, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He's saying to these discouraged people, look, God has made a promise and he's backed it up by an oath. Don't forget that. Don't throw the promise away. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Don't abandon that. God is trying to convince you that what he's doing is true. And he's, and he's done more than he should have in promising and backing it up with an oath on repeated occasions to more than, more than one generation of Abraham and his descendants. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. Let us remember that. God's word is true. God's word is true and he's backed it up. He's backed it up by sending his only son into the world to die for us, to, to be uh, raised from the dead, so that we could be saved, so that we could have a relationship with him. When we get discouraged, when we get obtuse, when we just don't feel like living out the Christian life, when we don't want to take part in those things, those habits that he talked about in the previous passage, the training, the continuous reminders, reading our, our Bible, spending time in prayer, coming to church on a regular basis, the means of grace that he's given us to grow. Sometimes you just get to where you just don't feel like doing that anymore, don't you? You just don't want to get up. I didn't want to get up this morning. It was all rainy and I don't want to preach today. It happens to the best of us. And I'm not saying I'm the best of us, but I'm just saying it happens to all of us. We just need to be reminded and that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing, that, that God's word is true, and we need to rest in that word, trust the word, 
follow through because of what the Word says. Now secondly, not only is Jesus Christ the fulfillment of the promises, but he is an anchor for the soul. In verse 19 it says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Well, it is Father's Day, and I want to say Happy Father's Day to everyone. And I want to give a shout-out to my grandfathers. Uh, uh, both uh, uh, have passed away, as, as has my father. But I had the privilege of growing up near both of my grandfathers here on the Gulf Coast. They were nearby. One of my grandfathers was a welder at Ingalls for like 40 years. The man could weld anything, and he was a master welder. When he retired, uh, they were both, both my grandparents lived in Pascagoula for a long time. He moved to Gautier. My other grandfather moved just across the state line in Grand Bay where I grew up. He, the other grandfather that was not the welder owned a seafood business, but when the welder grandfather retired, he came over to the seafood business on occasion, and he would make anchors for the ships that we had that went out to catch the boat. And these anchors were huge. They, they weighed several, several hundred pounds. I think it was like one-inch sheet metal that he cut out and, I mean, welded it. One day he dropped one on his foot, uh, and, and he was just walking around, you know, oblivious to the pain, I guess he was, you know, it was, it was, maybe he was in shock, but there was blood coming out of his shoe. That's how heavy the material he was working with, and he would weld these pieces together to create the anchors for the boats. Anchors are very important. Now, we have, of uh, course, motorized boats that have propellers, and when you uh, are out on the ocean in a large vessel like a fishing boat that we, we had, um, you can manipulate the, the wheel and the propeller and the engine, and you can hold your spot and you can, you can drive the boat. You can actually you know, whip one into the dock rather easily when you have a propeller and an engine. But in the days when this was written, it was all sailing ships and, or boats that were propelled by human propulsion, a rose. But especially in the case of uh, sailing ships, many of us, uh, many of you have probably sailed on boats, you really must have an anchor. Uh, anchors are vitally important to sailing a ship. I love to read novels about the Napoleonic Wars, about the French and the English fighting with one another, the sea battles especially, and, and just hearing about the points of sailing and, and uh, you know, some of the stories that I've read, they'll lose the anchor. And, you know, if you don't have an anchor, you can't stop. You can't hold your spot, and if you get in a storm, you're driven wherever. So anchors are very important, and we need an anchor for our souls. And Jesus Christ is that anchor, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. When you're tossed and turned about in life, when things are, are, are going in all sorts of directions and you're tempted to throw in the towel in your Christianity or give up on life altogether, as we heard other people you know, in Japan struggling with depression and a hopelessness in life, we need an anchor to hold us in place in the midst of our storms. And that anchor is Jesus Christ. So today, if you're ready to give up, if you don't feel like it anymore, cling to the anchor. Turn to Christ. 
He's the anchor for the soul. His promises are sure, and he will hold us in place. He will, he will not... Nothing, he will not allow anything to snatch us out of his hand, he says in John. So he's an anchor for the soul. Thirdly, finally, Scripture tells us here in verse 19, 20, uh, continuing the sentence, he's an anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I've told you, we're in, a, we're in a little parenthesis in the argument of Hebrews. He started talking about Melchizedek in chapter 5, and, and here, in chap, uh, here at the end of chapter 6, he's reintroducing the topic because chapter 7, next week's sermon, will be about Melchizedek again and the nature of Christ's priesthood. But this word uh, that he uses here, uh, he says Jesus is a forerunner on our behalf. Now that word is interesting because it was used especially of men or troops who were sent in to explore before the advance of an army. You know, they were the ones who went out first, the scouts. Jesus Christ has gone before us. He's done everything for us. Not only, he's not really a scout, but he's the whole army. that went out before us, and he's done everything that needed to be done. He's fought the battle for us already. He's the high priest. He went into the very inner place behind the curtain, the Holy of Holies, where he provided atonement for sin. He himself, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He went before us and then he ascended to heaven after he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. The first fruits of those who fall asleep, the Bible tells. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we will follow as, uh, also and we will go and be with him. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is there representing us even now. He's the forerunner. Where, where he goes, if we cling to him by faith, are united to him by faith, we will go where he goes. We will be with him forever. So he's encouraging these people. He is, Jesus is the forerunner on our behalf. He did it for us. He went through. He learned obedience through the things he suffered, it tells us in uh, chapter 5 and 6. He perfectly obeyed as our representative. His righteousness is credited to our account when we put our faith in him so that God can look at us and see that we're forgiven and spotless. He has gone before us. He is our representative. He is the anchor for our soul. He is the fulfillment of all the promise, promises. Jesus is our hope. And the writer will go on in Hebrews chapter 12 and encourage us. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, other people who have been faithful, like Abraham, who received promises, but he didn't get the, the promises for another 25 years, at least the promise of a child, took 25 years to fulfill that promise. And, and actually, he's still waiting for the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the promises. So since we're surrounded by all these people who endured, who were long-suffering, who waited for the fulfillment... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus, he had a hope. He had something that he was looking forward to. He was the one that had some joy set before him, the joy of saving his people from their sins. And that propelled him throughout his life to accomplish a a horrific task to go to the cross and to take the wrath of God that was due to us. That's what he did. And he was able to go through it and now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on him as you struggle. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for being sluggish. Forgive us for being battle-weary. Forgive us for being drowsy and for wanting to give up or for just wanting to play the game and not really give it our all. Lord, we, we need your grace because we can't give it our all. We're sinners. We fall short. We mess up. But we're thankful that you have completed all the work as our forerunner. May we just continue to turn to you, knowing that you love us, you cared so much about us that you would die for us. You did die for us. And Lord, we pray that you would bolster our faith today and that we would be propelled by your grace and mercy and forgiveness and love to us in a life of service to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.